For as long as we have lived For as long as we have known Love has carried us You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Genesis Covenant Church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. You can find out more about us at www.genesiscov.org. Enjoy the teaching in it together. Everybody, would you please welcome Annalise to the stage to read our scripture for the morning. Yeah! The scripture reading today is from John 2, 13 through 22. The Passover of of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people settling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal, for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word and Jesus had spoken. The word of the Lord. I'm the other Steve. Welcome. Uh, So we follow the Revised Common Lectionary, which means that every week we have four passages to pick. And uh, many times we pick the gospel. And so uh, today's gospel is the one where Jesus makes a whip and... uh, clears the temple. So uh, I have some questions, and this one is going to feel even more like a college class. Uh, Lots of questions, lots of teaching, so let's get right into it. Uh, All play questions around here, if you're new, are designed to hear all of us, not just one of us, because we feel like that's where we get a better picture of who God is, how God speaks, and um, where God is going. So what is the temple? Not a trick question, just what is the temple? Place of worship. Place where the spirit of the Lord is housed. Social marketplace. Center of community life. Sounds like a like a church title. Community life director. Center of political power. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Picture of permanence. Yes. A place where sins are cleansed. Yes. Anybody else? Yeah, in part, big part of the Jewish identity. So the first temple was completed in the mid-10th century BCE, uh, and it allowed what was written in Leviticus to actually happen, that 
the people's sins were going to be forgiven based on these sacrifices. It was the place of sacrifice. So lots of blood. It was gruesome, but also this beautiful place. Question, who built the first temple? Solomon. Okay, so Solomon's rolling up his sleeves. He's out there chinking away at the bricks, right? He's, he's putting the bricks in place, right? Solomon's doing that? Okay, Solomon had it built. Who built the temple? Say it again. Slaves built the temple. Now, wait a minute, though. The children of Israel used to be slaves, right, in Egypt. Now they're in the promised land. David was the great king of 40 years. His son Solomon is now reigning, and it's time to build a temple. So who's going to build the temple? Now, remember, they were slaves, 1 Kings 5, 9, 15 says this. This is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon conscripted to build the house of the Lord and his own house. All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, who were not the people of Israel. Their descendants were still left in the land whom the Israelites were unable to destroy completely. These Solomon conscripted for slave labor. And so they are to this day. Now that's written back then, you know, so, okay. Uh, but of the Israelites, Solomon made no slaves. They were soldiers, they were his officials, his commanders, his captains, and the commanders of his chariotry and cavalry. Now, what are we to make of that? That the temple, the identity, the place where sins are forgiven was built by slaves, Massive oversight. Whoops. Extreme dichotomy. Think anyone noticed at the time? There were a lot of good people living in the land as this temple was, you know, going up. Slaves noticed. Now, when we're slaves, man, that there's injustice, right? But when we enslave others, it's cool. That's a little bit of the tone of where we're going to go today. So the temple is destroyed in 587 by the Babylonians. And the Jewish people are sent off into exile. And the question is, how do we now worship our God? How do we receive forgiveness of sin? So they have to take it back to the drawing board because the temple is no longer there. But then in 515 BCE, they built a second temple, much smaller than the first. So now they can worship God again. They can do their sacrifices again according to the Levitical laws. But then they do this for a while, and then the Assyrians come and take over, and then they do this for a while, and then, the, and then Rome comes and conquers them. Rome conquers Jerusalem in, in 63 BCE, but they allow the Jews to continue to worship in the temple by putting the wealthy class in charge of the temple. You've heard of King Herod, right? Who was King Herod and what was he known for? He, got, he did. He got a lot of stuff done. Killed his own sons. So that's a tender-hearted father. He was the guy that ordered the, the Jewish baby boys under the age of two to be murdered because he, was, he had heard rumors that the Messiah was going to be born. That was, that was King Herod. King Herod rebuilt, expanded the temple. 
He made the platform of the new temple, get this, 40 acres wide. That's a big temple. He might have been overcompensating for something. (laughs) Who paid for all that and how did they collect the payment? Yeah, taxes were really high. Some people counted at 80%. So the temple authorities, again, appointed by Rome, are the priestly class and the, and the lay class. They all came from wealthy families. These families got wealthy because they were landowners. Now, according to the Bible, Jewish people can't sell or buy agriculture. So land can only be confiscated by a king or foreclosed on because of debt. Can't be bought or sold. But it could be used as collateral on a loan. Now, question, why would I put my land as collateral for a loan if I already own it? And I'm a Jewish person. My family's been there forever. The year of Jubilee, say more. Yeah, you, you, you would say, hey, if we're following the law, then the year of Jubilee, the land's going to come back to me. That is a great answer. Why else would you put your land up for collateral on a loan? Why would you have to borrow money if you don't have any money? Maybe the taxes are too high. Maybe if your crop was bad that year. Taxes stay the same. So because peasant landowners have a bad year and they can't pay their taxes, they take out loans, and when they can't pay their loans back, that, that land gets foreclosed upon and replaced, they're replaced with sharecroppers or day laborers. So now the families who used to live on their land and live on the food that they grew on their land as well as the food that they sold, now they're in a double bind. They can't sell any food and they can't eat any of the food that they used to grow. And so more and more wealthy people get more and more of the land. You guys tracking so far? This is just what happened. This is just first century Jerusalem. So important note, most of the wealthy families of that time weren't wicked. They weren't corrupt. They were good people who loved God. They just took part in the dominant system, which benefited them, while the peasant farmers were were losing land and starving. And they just didn't pay attention to that. So how did the Jewish people view the Romans? That's an all-play question. They were oppressors. Yes. How did they respond to that oppression? That's an all-play question. Aggression, some did, yep. How else? They prayed, yep, some did. How else? Say it again. Capitulation, yes. So there was essentially at least four reactions by Jewish people to the Romans of the time. The Sadducees collaborated. They capitulated. They're the ones that became the rulers because they thought it was either collaborate with the Romans and become like them or be killed. So they chose capitulation. The Pharisees stayed as far away from Rome as possible. They just sneered and treated the Romans with contempt every time they walked by. They would preach great sermons against the Romans. They just didn't do much about it. The Essenes lived completely separate as if Rome didn't exist in little colonies of of, of separations. And the zealots, of which Judas Iscariot was one, 
one of the disciples of Jesus, they used violence to overthrow Rome. So there was another Judas in the time of Jesus, Judas from Galilee, who laid siege to the Roman armory at Sepphoris and tried to reestablish the glory of Israel violently. But what happened was Rome demolished Sepphoris, I mean, burned it to the ground. So that's how Jesus grew up, with the smell of that in his nostrils. It's likely that Jesus, even as a carpenter, would have been hired to work on rebuilding Sepphoris. So in the first century, right about the time that the temple, and by the way, the temple is the place where you worship. It's also the place where the taxes are collected. So that's really convenient. Right around that time, what baby was dedicated at the temple? Jesus was. Of course he was. Now, uh, we read this in Luke 2. When the time came for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they, that is Mary and Joseph, brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord in Leviticus, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves (laughs) or two young pigeons. Now this is like, this is Torah 401. Why is it significant that we read that Mary and Joseph presented Jesus and as a sacrifice, they gave a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Why is that significant? All they could afford and they were poor. Someone said? Goes back to the covenant of Abraham. Yep. Yep. But before that, so in Leviticus, this is what, it, this is what we read. Leviticus 12. When the days of purification are completed, whether for a son or a daughter... The mother shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb in its first year for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. They shall offer it before the Lord to make atonement on her behalf. And this is the law for her who bears a child, male or female. Then verse 8, if she cannot afford a sheep, she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. So what do we know about Mary and Joseph and Jesus? They were poor. And that is the temple to which Jesus shows up that day on Passover. That's the temple system that Jesus is confronting. So Jesus isn't angry because they're selling Christian t-shirts out in the lobby. He's responding to systemic injustice that he's seen. And I was, I, was having, uh, I was hanging out with one of you guys this last week, and it's interesting, we were talking about this because I said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm preaching about this. And he's like, yeah, it's, you know, it's fascinating. Jesus didn't walk into the temple and, and ask to have a conversation with the, with the person in charge. He didn't ask to see the manager. Jesus came in there and... I mean, he fashioned a whip. Now, you know, there's, there's people that say this is what proves we should use violence. We should feel free to use violence because Jesus, you know, it's, we can infer that he must have drawn blood with that whip. We, haven't, we don't read that. I think that's really stretching it. 
Nevertheless, he fashions a whip and he drives the money changers out. He drives the people that are um, selling lambs because this is what would happen even for the poor people who would bring a turtle dove, the people who were selling uh, the, the, the sacrifices would, would say, uh, for a certain amount of money, you, you, you can buy a pre-approved spotless lamb that we have waiting in, in the back. And in, 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 in fact, you have to do that in order to be cleansed of sin. So that was the Jerusalem that Jesus entered when he cleared the temple that day. What are some questions that you might have at this time? That's an all play. What are some questions that you might have about Jesus and the temple and this system? Oh, what was going on in the temple the next day, Jonathan says. Well, we know five days from then is when Jesus is nailed to a cross. So we know there's some pretty tasty conversations happening. It's also fascinating. This comes from the book of John. This is in chapter 2 of John. So we read about the baptism. Then we read about Jesus turning 180 gallons of water into 180 gallons of wine after they've already drunk all the wine. So that's the first story that John tells about Jesus. The second story is this story. What is John saying about Jesus? Jesus is making big, grandiose moves. Why? He knows his authority. Thanks, Greg. And that comes later in the text. But it's fascinating because in verse 17, we read, his disciples remembered what is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews said to Jesus, and when we say the Jews, we're not talking about the entire Jewish people, okay? What we're talking about here is the Sadducees who were capitulating with Rome. So read that. The Sadducees who were capitulating with Rome said, what sign can you show us for doing this? What can we infer about the Sadducees by asking that question? They think they have the authority. And in fact, the worst part about this whole system that has been established is that it was legitimized by theology. It was legitimized by the very people that Rome put in rule, these Sadducees, that this system was given by God, so you have to follow it. And what is Jesus saying? This is not God's rule. This is not God's way. So sometimes you have to stand up to the religious establishment who has been blinded by the state-controlled way of doing things. We can protest that. But what we have to do is look at ourselves. Amen? And I know this is really hard to do, but if we sit there and go, those guys, without saying, in what ways are we complicit in this system? That's what's really difficult about this teaching. In what ways would, <laughs> I'm not trying to be weird, but in what ways am I 
absolutely uh, standing by while the slaves build the temple. So that's the, that's, the, that's the part. We can protest that, and we need to. But we have to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, in what way am I um, demanding that Jesus show me a sign by which he's allowed to do that kind of thing? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. To us, we know exactly what that means because, you know, it's what's on all the Hallmark cards around this time of year. But the Sadducees then said, hey, wait a minute, this temple's been un under construction for 46 years, buddy, and you, you say you're going to raise it in three days? So they had completely and utterly lost the plot. What happens when a group of people lose the plot? That's an off play. Say it again. So here's an all play. Here's not an all play question. In what ways or to what people do we say you can't come in? This is not for you. And to that, what would Jesus say? Now, According to Jesus here in verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The first question I asked, the first law I'll play was, what is the temple? I want to end the talk by asking the same question. What is the temple? The body of Christ. Thank you very much. The actual body of Christ, but also... Yeah, we are the body of Christ, amen? So collectively, how can we put our arms wide open and say, you are welcome here? And by here, I don't just mean like to occupy a seat at Sabus. I mean around my table. I mean with my kids. So the questions are, who can come? Who can enter? And in what ways are we beholden to the system? These are really rough questions. <laughs> Amen? But I can't do this text without asking them. So what you need to know is I'm asking myself these questions as well. And I have a little group of people that I'm wrestling through them with. And remember Antonia, who came here a few weeks ago? I'm having coffee with her on Wednesday, just to, because I want to hear more. She's planning on marching from Brooklyn Center to St. Paul, barefoot if it's above freezing. That's what she said. The doctors are telling her, if it's above freezing, she, she can do it barefoot. If it's below freezing, she can do it not barefoot. To which Haynes and I were saying, well, we're, we're hoping it's below freezing so then we can go with her with shoes on. <laughs> Let's have posture. Let's, as part of the dominant culture, can we have a posture of listening and learning? Genesis, can we do that? As part of the dominant culture, 
Can we not get caught up in, in, in overly feeling ashamed or guilty? Because I think that's just a recipe for disaster. But can we come into these kinds of conversations knowing that we don't know all that we think we know? I think if we do that, we can move forward confidently under the direction of Jesus toward a better, more integrated, more whole and inclusive future. And the invitation is for us. So we're going to take 60 seconds of silence, after which time uh, Deva and I will lead you through the prayers of response. So come, Holy Spirit, speak to us now.